if you had a time machine, would you go back in time and kill baby Hitler? Yeah. You'd kill a baby? Yeah, and I'd like it. You'd hold a gun to the head of a newborn baby and pull the trigger. Not only would I pull the trigger, I'd clean the gun, kiss the bullet, load it in, put that gun in a display case, and then shoot him with a dirtier gun. Good. I just wanted to make sure. Now you can pay for half this time machine I rented. Get in. Bitch it. Well, there he is, the future leader of Deutschland. In Dipland. What, your dad write that? I killed my dad. Just like I'm gonna kill this baby. What are you waiting for? I... Go on, do it! It's Adolf Hitler! Uh... Kill him! Execution style! Get him on his knees, make him beg for forgiveness for what he hasn't even done yet! But he's so... Evil? So... Vile? So... Wicked? Cute! Gimme that! I thought you were cool, you told me you'd kill a baby! <sighs> he smiled at me. I can't do it. Let's give him Poland. No! Well, we can't kill him. Can't we just, like, leave him in the woods or something? And risk him getting raised by a pack of anti-Semitic wolves? Well, he he's still young and pure. Maybe we can set him on a path of acceptance and understanding and love. We can show him that there's power in diversity and unity, not division. How about this? We raise him until he's 18 and he's an informed adult who can make his own decisions and we beat him to death with a baseball bat. Yeah, that one. And now it's springtime for Hitler and family, which is what the three of us are. Me, Daniel, you, Greg, and you, Adolf Hitler, our son. Happy 18th birthday, slugger. <laughs> Speaking of slugger, we got you something straight from Louisville. Now we know you're not a very big lover of the game. But we got you this here baseball bat. Care to show him how it's done, Daniel? Uh, uh my shoulder's broken from being a father to this child that I love. Maybe you're heartless enough to show him your form? Oh, I don't know. You always refer to yourself as the home run king. You always uh, said you knew how to really crack one open. Well, maybe if I had raised one of those balls for 18 years, I'd have just caught the ball and taken it to a candy shop instead. Daniel, a word? Hit him! Spill his brains all over his birthday pretzel! I can't! He's my little boy! He's my little boy too and I want him dead! Then why don't you do it? I would, but he smiled at me again. I love that little guy. If we love him, we just have to let him go. We've taught him everything we could. He's kind, he's compassionate, he's got a bitch and bod. This ain't your mama's Hitler. This is our Hitler. <sighs> okay. But we have to be delicate about this. This is gonna be painful for everyone, but we have to make sure that he knows that we have always loved him. Hitler! We never loved you! Can't you see we don't want you anymore? Why don't you go back from where you came from? Why'd you hit me? He smiled at me! Leave us alone! Oh. Oh no, he walked into art school. Nah, it's okay. He's got no money. Oh no, my tuition's missing. He pickpocketed me. That son of a- Us. Son of a us. We have to go back in time and kill art school when it was a baby. Here we are! Ellie Meekly's here, episode 49! You're looking at me like, oh, oh yeah, God, it is 49. No, yeah. I'm confused that it's the first episode of the new year. And we're starting from And nine. I've already broken my resolution of 
never doing another podcast again. Yeah, sorry. I dragged you into it. We're in your bedroom right now. You're in your PJs. You have a yeah. bunk bed, but you're just one person here. I, I, I followed through on. with all my other... I lost 100 pounds <laughs> since December 31st. I started stand-up comedy, and I was... Right away, I just skyrocketed. <laughs> I hope you guys like my HBO special <laughs> that came out at noon. <laughs> it's for babies. It's an after-school comedy It's mostly special. Price is Right related. <laughs> Welcome to the new year, 20... God, 2018. 2018. Weird. This now it's going to make since 2013 sound like it actually might mean something. I know. It's like, like there's those restaurants that say like open since 2009. Like, I don't whatever. care. Yeah. Okay. So what? You're, I you're, only eat places from before 1880. <laughs> <laughs> when pants were not regular. <laughs> I was not regular a- in my pants. Hey, <laughs> do people like that? <laughs> Does anybody like this? <laughs> Which is, should be the name of our podcast. Uh, and the answer is No. <laughs> That'll be the after show. Happy New Year, everybody. Hope your Christmas was bright. I bet you're hungover right now listening to our voices yeah. and it's too much for you. I bet you're covered in that dust from fireworks that won't let you go on an airplane because they think it's a bomb. That happened to my sister. That's funny. Your sister... Um, my sister, Isis. I, f- <laughs> I feel like you're the one that all the bad stuff should happen to, but it happens to all your loved ones instead. Yeah, Luck of the, the draw, cat. Yeah, yeah well, welcome to episode 49, or rather 49. <laughs> Oh, I didn't see that coming. I was very I. excited about that. Yeah, me too. That's good. Uh, we're going to be talking about Nazis. In Los Angeles. Could in you Los believe Angeles. it? The multicultural city. Nazis in LA. There are no Nazis in LA. Well, actually there are, which was the original intro which for this episode. Intro. But we decided to go with an opera instead. Yeah, no, we wanted a little Harry and the Hendersons treat for everybody. You remember Harry and the Hendersons, right? It was that 80s movie where they adopt Bigfoot. <laughs> John Lithgow <laughs> adopts Bigfoot and everyone has to kind of adjust to that. We wanted to. We wanted to do that. <laughs> we didn't want a short song that was funny. You all recall a movie nobody recalls, right? <laughs> well, we did it. Well, you suggested this when Nazis were big in the news. Well, here's two things that happened. Here's two things that happened. Donald um, Trump was elected. I believe the head of special collections at CSUN, I was there doing research for the San Fernando Valley episode. And she's like, oh, somebody's writing a book right now on Nazis in LA. We have a big collection if you ever want to do an episode on that. I'm like, yeah, we'll get around to it. And it sounded cool. I think it's a lot of stuff that you probably covered. A couple months later, Charlottesville happened. And I was like, I know about this collection. And then <laughs> January was the first time we had a free episode. I know, we had been, everything, like, everything else is locked into place. Yeah. Uh, well, the collection at CSUN is all of the documents mm-hmm. of some, the last person i'm going to be talking about in this episode yeah yeah and they're like actual our lord and savior a lot of it is online luckily they digitized it but they they offered for me to go and play with it which i i got to a little bit but not enough but the books are we we haven't used the books for our resources because they're not out yet it is it is but i don't have time to read most of this is just guessing i've been reading jurassic park i don't have time to read nazi (laughs) books I mean, sure, there were some dinosaurs here, but I wouldn't call it. Jurassic Park is just an, a retelling of Ilsa She-Wolf of the SS anyways. I don't know why I'm doing this. Yeah, so we split it into mm-hmm. two sections of the story. Greg's going to be talking about... Uh, Nazi parties in LA. And I'm going to be talking about the efforts to counter those Nazi parties. Well, I didn't a counterparty. At, I didn't look into that. That's very odd. I thought that Nazis succeeded. I, <laughs> I maybe thought they I won. Sh- I thought I should... Maybe I should rewrite the end of my thing then. <laughs> oh, boy. Oh, go- oh, golly. I thought the man in the high castle was a non fiction book <laughs> i was in the high castle smoking marijuana greg no i mean search january 1st and you can do that and that's <laughs> fine but not now we're gonna get taxed if you say people you're gonna do that please if, come on i don't, don't want say you. people you're gonna do that <laughs> all right let's get going ready okay germans Webster's, the last frontier webster's dictionary defines germans as a native or inhabitant of germany 
That was all the research I did. <laughs> Germans see evil. <laughs> That's mean. Come on. What about der Wiener Schnitzel? <laughs> der uh, evil Schnitzel. Germans were arriving in Los Angeles by the 19th century, or should I specify one German had? The one, 19th nine. century? You can do that the whole time, because yeah. I, I say 19 like a lot. <laughs> Get ready. Let's see. His name was Juan Domingo. He was the German... Whoa, whoa. His name was... Wa he was German, and his name was Juan, Juan Domingo. Domingo. <laughs> yeah, Juan Domingo was a German seafarer who was rescued from a ship in sure. the San Pedro Harbor and was recorded in the 1836 census. He liked San Pedro so much, he stayed there, became a prominent landowner in San Pedro. And by the 1850s, there were some pioneer business owners who hailed from Germany, as well as people who were just like bakers. Their names? Oh, <laughs> Jose <had> Sanchez. <laughs> These old Nordic names. <laughs> Pedro Camancho. <laughs> by the 1850s they were like they owned businesses and stuff but they also they were bakers and pharmacists and brewers and barbers and butt make bo boot yeah, makers butt makers and, <laughs> butt makers and uh it's my job make butts uh, no if ands or butts <laughs> i make butts you're a fan of my work i make butts i, I like to make butts i cannot lie that's aaron Mankey doing a lore episode on butts <laughs> that's aaron mix a lot <laughs> sir manx a lot and, i like <laughs> Mm, big butts. Yeah, I said, <laughs> I said it. it. Big butts. <laughs> Back to Nazis, please. Oh, let's, please. Let's do this. In the developing years of the city, the German community established its own benevolent society, the Turnverin Society, which was a German language school. The what's this? Tur uh, Turnverin? I'll spell it for you if you want. That's not necessary. You don't really care. Uh, <laughs> a cultural society known as the Titan... Uh, the Teutonia Concordia, an agricultural colony in Orange County using the German word for home of the Anna River. It's called Anaheim. Really? Anaheim's a German word. Wow, I did, I, that, that makes complete sense. That doesn't it make complete sense? Wow, that's sense? fun. I don't want to talk about Orange County Orange here. County, yeah. <laughs> it's important to remember that there are a lot of neo-Nazis in Anaheim. By 1876, the census recorded about 2,000 German folks living in L.A. County. The number declined abruptly after Franz Ferdinand was shot and World War I broke out. Mm. An odd phenomenon. Mm. So the number of German residents once again rose uh, come 1930 after the city had grown exponentially through the boom of the 1920s. In those years, 1920, let's go to Germany for a little bit. Hitler was mm. growing no. a following. <laughs> Please, no. Please, uh, keep me out of Germany for uh, <laughs> most of the 20th century. Hitler was growing a following for his political party but also in the 20s he was hiding from the police after a cheap attempt at seizing power failed the man who hit him was an american in germany wait, wait who is this who are we talking about hitler who's that <laughs> is he one of himmler's goons <laughs> you mean wilhelm's little little pet project <laughs> he'll never amount to anything him that and the beatles won't amount to anything that mustached goon go back to art school i say that's what i always say that's what that's, that's what the things i say yeah at that time in the 20s hitler was trying to gain power he wasn't succeeding very well he was hiding from the police the man who hit him from the police was an american in germany his name was ernest e f nine <laughs> ernest borgnine or old uh, borgie was hiding him ernest e f hamstenkel Wait a minute. Where is the middle initial? Ernest E F. Oh, so E F. E -F he has two middle, middle initials. initials. Yeah. His name is an Ernesty. No, it's not Ernesty. It's Ernest E F. Or F. Stenkel. Okay. F. Stenkel with All an right. H. Okay. Stop saying. Yeah, I can, I, I'm gonna keep saying it. German pride didn't go anywhere. One place where the German community could celebrate its culture in LA was on the western edge of La Crescenta Park, an area called Hindenburg Park, named after Paul von Hindenburg, mm -hmm. who served as Germany's president from the late 20s to the early 30s. Wait, what's the guy's name again? Hinkelstein. Henstenkel. You want to look at it? Maybe you can say it better. Maybe you know the name. 
Oh, it's E.F. Hofschnengel. <laughs> oh, yeah, you know the guy. You, you know him, Greg. Greg, you know him. We're talking about Hindenburg Park. The grounds were acquired by the German-American League for a purpose of gathering place for the LA German people to socialize. There was a statue of Von Hindenburg at the park, which I've seen. It looks pretty creepy because it's just kind of his shoulder and his head, and his head's pretty giant. It's still there? No, it, it got re- removed in the 50s. Uh, we'll get to that. Um, <laughs> Why? Who won? Who, how does the war turn out? <laughs> at this park, they had dances. They served beer and sausages. It was the first place in California they had an Oktoberfest. Huh. All of California. Yeah. First, I read Southern California. Then I read it was one of the first places. Then I read somewhere that it was the first place. So I'm going to go with that. Then one. I read Germany doesn't actually exist. <laughs> I heard it's just a state of mind. Hindenburg Park stands at 3901 Dunsmuir Avenue in La Crescenta. Mm-hmm. It's where Dunsmuir meets Honolulu Avenue. You mean 3901? 3901. What did I say? 3901. <laughs> this is going to go very slow. You want to just blanket? For all of you using some sort of computing. 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 Are you using that old computing? <laughs> Whoever's listening to this on a computing right now, whenever we say nine, just assume it, I'm saying nine. When I wrote this, I thought I, I was dreaming. I was dreaming when I wrote this. When I wrote all this stuff about Hindenburg Park, I'm like, oh, all of this sounds innocent. As I did more research, though, this was one of the first things I wrote about was about Hindenburg Park. And then I went back. <laughs> the German American League, which bought the park and was a, supposedly a front, as was the Terveran Society and the Teutonia Concordia, and maybe even Anaheim might be a front for something darker. <laughs> I don't even know. But a lot of these things that I'm like, oh, that's really cool. They're celebrating German culture. Nope. All of it's kind of scary. Yeah. The census recorded the number of German residents in LA in 1930 at 120,000 people. So the German community is pretty vast in Los Angeles in 1930, and they had a lot of German pride. But that's a little awkward in the 30s because of what was happening in <laughs> Germany. See, by 1932, going back to Germany, okay, well, 32, we were hosting the Olympics. If you remember that episode, yeah. we got some money from the Reichstag. Reich. Reichstag, sorry. Now you got the second part wrong. Adolf Hitler became the <laughs> Chancellor of Germany Ooh. around that time. He was appointed Chancellor by Paul von Hindenburg, who was the namesake of the park, which pretty much led to Hitler's rise to power and begun, or I guess had it had already begun setting in motion the eradication of the Jewish people and anyone who did not fit whoa, into the model of whoa, the blonde hair, blue eyes. <laughs> this final solution of his was a crazy idea, but what was craziest is that many people, many a majority xenophobic Germans and people in fanatics went along with it. Mm. They were like, this sounds good. Let's do this. This is great. Sign me up. I'm... So Hitler's rising power in Germany, in America, there's professed Nazi party representatives had been coming from the Deutschland to the U.S. since about yeah. 1926, setting up cells in different cities throughout yeah. the country. There were several on the East Coast, some notable ones in North Carolina, Milwaukee, St. Louis, Buffalo, Oakland. It seems like the big mission at the time was to spread Nazi propaganda, obviously. German military officers were also here in the States imparting training to military groups who pledged allegiance to Germany. The second step in their organization was to divide the country into three geographic areas which were the division of the east cold burr the division of the west that's us cool and the middle division which is where hobbits live New York, <laughs> middle america middle america <laughs> new york seemed to be their most important cell followed by chicago which claimed to be the oldest and most important nazi center fyi the german american boon party which came to la originates from chicago in 1933 mm-hmm. not every german citizen obviously supported nazi stuff yeah, of course right. not many were exiles of germany however we're not here to talk about them we're here to talk about the Nazi party in Los Angeles. Now, there are a lot of different groups This is going to be a real one-sided episode. <laughs> Equal time. Equal <laughs> Equal time. It's, uh, talk. It, 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 I'll talk. Let me say something. It's weird to think that, uh, obviously, anti Semitism and all that was a big part of the Nazi party, yeah. but they weren't seen as how we see them now. 
you know, they're not like the epitome of evil. They weren't then how we see them now, which is the worst thing that could have happened. So for these things to be popping up, it's not, it's weird to think, but it's not that weird at the time. Well, at the time, I'll get into this, but I'll just talk about it a little bit right now. It was also the depression in the 30s. Yeah. And we were looking for scapegoats. And of course, like Americans, America for Americans was a big thing. It still kind of is, sadly. But like any anybody who like Jewish people were accused so much of running the show. Whoa, whoa, what are you saying? (laughs) Hang on, I gotta run the show. (laughs) (laughs) I gotta cut your mic. Hold on. Let's talk about the Nazis. Yeah, let's stop talking about the Nazis. Let's get back to the Nazis. (laughs) We've given Jewish people enough time already. Let's get back to the Nazis. There are a lot of different groups uh, out there. (laughs) There were the League to Save America first, the National Copperheads, the American Guards, the Anti-Communist Federation, the militant Christian Patriots, George Deathrage. His name is Deathrage. He was the leader of the American. National Confederation tried twice in 1938 with the assistance of Henry Allen and Leslie Fry. There was the American League of Christian Women led by Francis Maxey and of course let's not forget William Dudley Pally and Herr Schmidt who ran the Silver Legion of the Silver Shirts who we covered in an episode yeah. called Podcast That Time Forgot when they hold up in Murphy's Ranch in Santa mm-hmm. Monica we've covered that. Yes. I'm mostly going to focus this time on the bigger group that aligned more closely with the Nazi party. It was the German American Bund or the Friends of New Germany which was led on the West Coast by yeah. Herman Schwinn. So although heavily influenced by German Germany and the Nazi party, members of the Bund thought of themselves as loyal, patriotic Americans. The Mm -hmm. phrase America first comes up a lot in the reading about Bund in America. Well, you see all those pictures of them with the American flag and the Nazi flag. next to a swastika. I guess that's what it's called. Yeah, (laughs) the the America first is a thing that comes up a lot in the reading about the Bund in America, and that's a thing that the alt-right is saying now, and Donald Trump. In fact, it's the name of his new security strategy. It's called America first something something. America for the new Germany. (laughs) (laughs) According to one reading the Boone members looked up to heroes like George Washington and Abraham Lincoln and Horst Vessel, a stormtrooper and martyr of the Nazi party after he was killed in a street brawl in Germany. He is not on Mount Rushmore, so stop looking. <laughs> These guys very much were about America for white Gentiles and did not like things like communism or jazz, which are two of my favorite things. <laughs> my um, favorite music is communist jazz. <laughs> Equal time for all instruments. <laughs> Every solo is the exact same uh, I don't know if time. you're familiar with the Paul of Tompkins joke about jazz, but everyone gets a solo. <laughs> oh, are we talking about Star Wars now? Is it time? Has enough time passed? Um, Like we were saying, it was a really odd time in America because the depression had hit. Work and money was scarce. Americans were not happy about losing jobs to people that didn't seem like Americans to them. Think of like the Mexican Repatriation Act, which we talked about, which happened in the 30s when they sent like thousands of Mexicans back to Mexico. Some of them were citizens, like first generation uh, Americans that were sent back to Mexico, never had been there before because Mm. they wanted to make a room for white people. All sounds very familiar. Yeah, this is uh, all scary stuff and it's all happening all the time. (laughs) It's happening again. Time is a flat circle. Um, (laughs) Angry Americans found scapegoats and were in doing so in finding scapegoats flat brought worse <laughs> i want that to make sense you know really badly but it won't time is a flat spatzel <laughs> now it makes less sense but it could make sense in finding scapegoats people themselves leaned into extremist groups some found communism as a way to solve the problem that capitalism had made with the depression and some went into nazism as a way to deal with what they thought the problem with america was sadly i wish that was a thing of the past uh no mm. 2017 <laughs> has been a i wish more storm. people were going into communism <laughs> <laughs> you know it's not a bad idea that's what that bernie sanders wants (laughs) So that extremism was perfectly matched with Nazis 
roaming the country looking for followers, spider and fly. Like that's how you get the boon in America. And that's how you get in a very multicultural Los Angeles. Everyone's looking for someone to blame. And suddenly Nazis are like, I got an idea. <laughs> I know who to blame. So in 1930, like I mentioned, there's about 120,000 Germans in America. But between 1919 to 1933, it was said that there was altogether 400,000 Germans immigrated to the U.S. So the German-American boom looked appealing to first-generation immigrants, but also it very quickly was filled with creeps, cretins, and criminals. <laughs> that's just how that stuff the works. The CCC. Yeah, the CCC. So in September 1933, a company of stormtroopers first organized in LA and had been working for the Nazi party regularly. Massive amounts of propaganda literature was shipped from German vessels through San Pedro, where Juan Domingo had was rescued almost 100 years before that, and this was shipped and distributed by the Friends of New Germany. The boon began as the Friends of New Germany in Chicago, 1933, as I mentioned. The boon was the American arm of the Nazi party and it traces its roots to the Suetonia Society, which I mentioned was one of the first things that was being set up in Las Crescenta. And the, the German culture was, was part of that. The success of the Third Reich helped the acceleration of the boom's popularity. So the German-American was getting more popular as the Nazi party in Germany was getting more popular. Okay, let's get to the good stuff. The boon had two goals. To establish an effective power base by Nazifying the German-American mm. community and to sway American public opinion in favor of New Germany. Mm. Under the direct leadership of uh, American Führer Fritz Kuhn, K-U-H-N. I remember we talked about him. A little I think, bit, yeah. Fritz Kuhn himself appointed personally by Hitler. Kuhn was to distribute propaganda throughout the nation from the Deutsch House, which I'll get to. Typical Boone literature would say stuff like, buy Gentile, employ Gentile, vote Gentile, boycott the movies. Hollywood is Sodom and Gomorrah. Yeah, with... I have that same quote in mind. Let me make sure. But read I'm going to read it in an old-timey voice. Is that okay? Yeah, an old-timey German voice. Give you me your remember. best great dictator impression. Um, I ain't never seen the movie. Is this <laughs> I... how they're talking at? Buy Gentiles. Bye. Hollywood is, a Sodom and <laughs> Hollywood is a Sodom and Gomorrah where jewelry controls vice, dope, and gambling. The group was ordered to organize boycotts of Jewish run I have a little bit more to that quote later that you'll find... You'll find... Humorous. Humorous. <laughs> the groups were ordered to organize boycotts of Jewish-run businesses, especially the movie industry. They were also, their jobs were to slander teachers and others who supported American entry into the war. The goal Bund hoped for was to purge the United States of Jews, minorities, communists, and anyone who did not share its notion of Aryan supremacy. Big surprise. <laughs> the idea was to take the German Nazi ideology and Americanize it while chastising anybody who did not fit into that. Just give it a baseball glove. One of the first Nazi leaders... Piling <laughs> with a baseball <laughs> glove on. I caught it! But also... <laughs> Thank you, Hitler, for guiding <laughs> Nice <me>. pitch, Goebbels. <laughs> One of the first Nazi leaders in L.A. was... A swing in a Jewish myth. One of the first Nazi leaders in L.A. was Robert <laughs> Frederick Pap, Pap or Pape. P-A-P-E. Okay. Pap. He was a leader of the group that was a predecessor. He was the leader of the Friends of New Germany. Pap was a captain of German army and a member of the uh, National Socialist German Workers Party, which led for the absolute power of Hitler. Their headquarters was the Alt Heilberg restaurant building, which yeah. was the former we're, mansion. We're just, we're interlocking. We're kind of, we're, this is great. <laughs> This is great. I love us. <laughs> the old Heiderberg restaurant building, which was formerly a mansion, had been converted into a German-American community at 902 South Alvarado Street, which is near MacArthur Park, close to James M. Wood Boulevard. That was one base of theirs. The other was the Friends of New Germany office, 1004 West Washington Boulevard, which is close to Union Avenue. I believe it now the 10 freeway runs through it, which is also an early address of the Aryan Bookshop who was opened yeah. by two organizers of the group. Well, I, I have more details on where exactly the schematics of that. Okay, yeah, thank you. I, I kind of got like cross Oh, you didn't something. read the blueprints I sent you? <laughs> uh, Greg, you're supposed to walk the beat. Did you walk the beat? <laughs> Greg, uh, I sent you the floor plan of a bookstore from 80 years ago. You didn't go over that. I sent a lift driver to your house to drive you there. You didn't get in it? <laughs> Edgar, let's go pick you up. You didn't get in Edgar's car? <laughs> Our resident Uber driver. <laughs> Ali Meekly is Uber driver. <laughs> Edgar. Edgar. Okay, so it was run by two guys, the area bookstore, Herman Schwinn, which is, like I said, the leader 
leader, uh, West Coast leader of the Bund, and Hans Diebel. Schwinn was born in Hamburg, Germany, was a granted U.S. citizenship. Diebel was a Gestapo agent from Berlin. These two were referred to as the Bookshop Twins. <laughs> they were a contemporary band of the Pet Shop Boys. <laughs> they didn't really have the beats down, but they ate forever, you know? Uh, later, the Aryan Bookshop would move to the Deutsch House at 634 West 15th Street near Hope Street in downtown L.A., which I'm sure you'll get to. Deutsch's house, of course, translates to the German House Tavern. So let's talk about the Aryan Bookshop. Yes, there was a place in Los Angeles called the Aryan Bookshop, <laughs> and you better believe it was constantly vandalized and protested really? upon. The Aryan Bookshop was offered the bi- offered the Bitcoin? biggest... Bitcoin? Yeah, you could get Bitcoin there because you can get anything because you can't trace... It's not traceable, but the numbers are growing, so we're going to look past the fact that you can buy child I bought with a lot of Bitcoin, and I've used it all on Aryan literature. All of That's all just going to go up in value. <laughs> the shop offered the biggest selection of anti-Jewish and anti-communist material in the country other than Ooh. Mel Gibson getting pulled over on the PCH. <laughs> was that two episodes in a row where we yeah, made Mel Gibson, Gibson getting pulled over? <laughs> I mean, he is a villain, and he uh, is a Holocaust <laughs> denier. It fits. This is going to be the year of Gibson. <laughs> He's coming back, and I'm going swinging for him because I know when it's jacuzzi time, buddy, okay? That's a reference to his fellatio message that he left that woman. You want, you want, you want, to, you want to play it? You want to play it? <laughs> you want to hear my one-man show of it? The area bookshop distributed a vast variety of German and English language books and articles designed to go along with Hitler's basic divide and rule principle, which sought to create racial hatred among all classes of society. And in LA, we have a lot. Uh, the Aryan bookshop was also a meeting ground for German Nazi officials sojourning in the US. So a hundred or so people would gather in a hall for a meeting where a makeshift stage was erected with a speakers and a podium. Do they have an open mic? How many minutes can I do? Is it a bucket? Do I have to buy <laughs> some a- anti-Jewish stuff just to get a, like three extra minutes? <laughs> it's a one armband minimum. <laughs> so there was a speaker, a makeshift podium. Beside the podium, there was an American flag, an uh, Imperial German flag, and of course the Nazi flag. There'd be about 15 men dressed in brown shirts and were well, scattered around the hall guarding the meeting. What? What's an Imperial German flag? I'm guessing it's like the eagle and all that. I mean, like the Nazi flag is not the German flag. You're right. But it became the German flag because not... Wait a minute. The Nazi this is flag a question is, I've never considered. The Nazi flag is not the German flag. The Nazi flag is the flag of the Nazi party. But There's it became flag. the flag of Germany. Yeah, during the era where the Nazis yeah, controlled, the Nazis Germany, controlled Germany. But it was not the German flag. Yeah. You mean That's, they don't still use the swastika <laughs> as their flag? <laughs> well, we gotta stick with it. He made a rule. He made a big freeway. We gotta keep it. Yeah, that's weird. They changed the flag. Yeah, they took over half the world. I didn't. I never even considered that, that they changed the flag. That's crazy. Imagine it's 2015 and they go to the Olympics and they still have to carry the swastika <laughs> around. God. Listen, we're real sorry for what we did. Yeah, yeah. Yes, keep carrying it. There was also the Continental Bookshop at 2509 West 7th Street, which is on the other side of MacArthur Park, and that was run by F.K. Ferenz. This bookshop was another one of the channels of Nazi printed and sold propaganda and conducted German language classes. Heading up the pro-Nazi film effort was F.K. Ferenz, and he leased several theaters around L.A., including the historic Mason Opera House on Broadway. When a judge barred theaters from playing the German film Dr. Koch, Ferenz tried to sue the theater owners and lost. Unrelated, but this is funny too, he had a mock impeachment trial for FDR at the Deutsch House in 1941, which raised a lot of eyebrows, and all those eyebrows were hiling Hitler. <laughs> they stuck right out. <laughs> I feel like all the people who are on the wrong side of history hold fake impeachment shows. Because they have no power, and they think that they, they have big egos and no power, except for Hitler, who had a lot of power. <laughs> big ego and big power. <laughs> That's what happens when you're Hitler. You might be a Hitler. You might be. If you <laughs> if you got big ego and a big power to go with it. And a little am- mustache, you might be Hitler. You might be Hitler. <laughs> I'm Aaron Mink. I'm Aaron Mink. I'm Aaron Mink. I'm Aaron Mankey. I'm and I might be baby. Hitler. You know, he was just about to listen to us, too. He was just about to support. <laughs> this support. was the one he was going to finally get. This the is chance. the one he was going to support. And he can't support us now. I...
I don't like this. <laughs> I don't like to be mocked. Oh. Much like a vampire. I didn't concentrate too much on the Nazis' influence on the film industry. I have stuff on that. Okay, I have yeah. FK Ferenz who was trying to show a lot of pro-Nazi films in Hollywood. There's another guy. This guy was a little more involved. He was a German mm-hmm. counsel. Say it. His name was George, I think it's Gessling. Gessling, yeah. Gessling, yeah. who you want to talk about. It? I'm going to... He was sent to L.A. by Adolf Hitler and Joseph Goebbels in June of 1930. Goebbels? Goebbels. Joseph Goebbels? Oh, it's not Goebbels. It's another guy. It's a drag queen version of Joseph Goebbels. <laughs> Joseph Goebbels. And the single task Guessing had was stopping Hollywood from making anti-Nazi films. Guessing had been despised by anti-Nazi Hollywood for decades. And as a counsel to Germany, he somehow had a powerful grip on the movie industry and had a lot of studios adhering to his guidelines. He forced multiple studios to alter their films to make Nazis seem more sympathetic. He apparently asked Warner Brothers not to use the word Jew in a movie after a compassionate speech given about a Jewish character. The weird deal with Guessing, I don't know if you'll get into this, is that many people suggest that he was actually working against the Nazis for the Italian maybe Mm. i read that he also helped negotiate the surrender of all german forces that's not true but uh, we'll get into that well i can't trust all my sources and that was a book (laughs) published book a typical boon activity was to drop leaflets from i read that in a highlights magazine and now i just can't believe anything anymore i stared at the tree with the pencil in it and i got lost and suddenly everyone all the nazis are helping surrender so okay i don't know what year it is i'm pencil tree the one thing the one reference we know about highlights magazine (laughs) is that they always talked about Nazis in the pencil tree. Obviously, you don't know how to read highlights. Okay. A typical boon activity was to drop leaflets from tall buildings onto the streets. This was referred to jokingly as bombing. <laughs> like a blitzkrieg of paper. In 1934, January, the society claimed more than 300 members and maintained a close tie to the silver shirts, which had a headcount of like 5,000 members in Southern California, but they were somehow less powerful. The boon also had a radio station, KRKD, which broadcast a show called the German Hour, where the hosts attacked Jews and communists, and which were in their opinion were uh, the enemies the of same. yeah and the enemies of Germany and America with a K. KRKD <laughs> 1150 was broadcast out of the Spring Arcade building on downtown on 5th near Broadway and in the 20s that building was owned by Amy Semple McPherson. Wow. But it was eventually sold in the 30s so she's off the hook. The KRKD <laughs> radio not in my book. She's too white to not be Nazi. <laughs> she loved all people as long as they gave a couple bucks to her. The KRKD <laughs> tower still stands by the way and they just had a big old deal about lighting it up again. Wait a minute, that's the one that I always think is the RKO tower. Yeah, so that not. thing was spewing Nazi filth? For an hour. <laughs> Just for an hour a night. What's, Gee, the, what's the big deal? I mean, what, uh, 23 hours controlled by the Jewish community and then you don't get to give one hour you to can't the have Germans? one hour. <laughs> and everything else is probably a Mexican or whatever. In 1933, there was two Boone synthesizers. Synthesizers? Synthesizers. Working for the LA Times. Are we talking about the Pet Shop Boys again? The Boone synthesizers? Their other rival band. <laughs> Much more popular, but less talented. Than the bookshop twins. They just looked better. There was two Boone sympathizers working for the LA Times who inserted anti-Semitic pamphlets into the newspaper. Swastikas were flying high in parts of LA. On October 20th, 1935, a group of Nazis celebrated Hitler's birthday at the German house. 420, bro. Uh, (laughs) They had a space on the airwaves to hate. January 1st. (laughs) The new 420. (laughs) They blanketed the city with their BS, but nowhere did they celebrate nearly as proudly as La Crescenta, <laughs> specifically on the grounds of Hindenburg Park, where German culture was to be celebrated. Of course, the park was funded by the German-American League, which may have been a front to the boond. Named after a president who made it possible for Hitler to rise above the ranks of being a thug, rallies were held there often, scaring the S-word out of everybody who lived in La Crescenta that wasn't a Nazi. Another local hangout... Were there any? 
are there any? I mean, <laughs> like that then and now. And now, another local hangout was the old Vienna restaurant at, on Sunland Boulevard. According to the book I was using for research, Wicked Wicked Crescenta Valley by they Gary. Made wicked croissants. Wicked Crescenta Valley by Gary Keys and Mike Lawler. The restaurant has a legend of having secret passages used by German spies to do what? Uh, go from place to place, cross the street <laughs> safely. Like school children? Why risk it? Why? Yeah. You never know when the Catholic is going to be behind the wheel. Some old nun. <laughs> you never know when one of those communist mobiles is going to come <laughs> barreling through a stop sign. A bus full of communists because that's how communists do it. They take the bus. <laughs> Hindenburg Park was kind of sounds scary, not only because of the patriotic assemblies and the swastikas and the speeches held there, which often had high-ranking boomed and Nazi officials, but also there was something called Camp Sutter. Camp Sutter was a youth camp for the Jugendstraft movement, <laughs> roughly translated to the community of youngsters, which also sounds <laughs> scary just on its own out of context community of youngsters but the Jugendstoft was modeled after the Hitler youth so minors of all ages could all learn German customs and ideals and wear cool brown shirts and armbands and get all indoctrinated under the Third Reich have you looked at footage of Hitler and Himmler and Goebbels and thought yeah this is cute but I want to see like a Muppet Babies version <laughs> of this Jugendstoft Jugend Jugendstoft <laughs> Hindenburg Park had many rallies led by different speakers people like William Dudley Pally of the Silver Shirts General Art Smith of the Khaki Shirts Ralph H. Major Jr. of the White Shirts and Warren Buffett of the Hawaiian <laughs> the shirts. Shirt. Not very popular. Is it Warren Buffett or Jimmy Buffett? Which one is the Hawaiian shirt one? Ask they that. probably both have them. It's not Warren Buffett. It's Jimmy Buffett. It was almost funny what I just said. Yeah, I, would, I was rooting for you. <laughs> They had a lot of speakers there, militant Christian patriots. Gottfried Karl Hein of the Oakland Boone spoke there. Wilbur Keegan was the attorney and general counsel for the Boone out of New York. He pleaded with the audience for unity between German and Americans to call it America to keep them out of the British war because if they get in there, oh boy, is it going to be not fun for Nazis. <laughs> the bigger and more notable German-American Boone rallies were held in 1935 and 1939. In 35, a German cruiser was in town and the crew was invited to join in on the festivities. The main attraction for the day was the speaker Fritz Kuhn, the American Führer himself, in army of 2,000 of the German-American boon descended on the park. Swastikas flying high next to the American flag. Imagine such a time where Nazis are walking through the streets. Imagine something like, I don't know, throw a year at the 2017 <laughs> where they're like, hey, it's okay to come back out. Oh, speak of the 39 rally, Double Bill, Herman Schwinn, and mm. Fritz Kuhn. It should be noted shortly after this rally that Fritz Kuhn was convicted of forgery and embezzling boon foons, which is funny. And spent... <laughs> Uh, spent you mean bun funds? Bun funds. <laughs> and spent almost four years in prison after being deported back to Germany, where he died in 1953, because these people are all... Wait a minute, he was imprisoned after he was deported? Spent almost four years in prison before being deported okay. back to Germany, and then he died in 1953, because these people are all goons and criminals. And what mortal. happened after he died, though? Was he deported again? Oh, was he's a vampire. He's Nosferatu. Anywho. The rally. The Boone stormtroopers filled the area in their gray and black getup. Ooh, we're talking about Star Wars again. And uniformed garbs protected the stage, flanked by red banners of swastikas. You've seen this kind of thing. Then suddenly, from high above, sounds of an aircraft. A plane mm -hmm. bombed the crowd with anti-Nazi handbills that boasted the head Explosive anti-Nazi. Explosive <laughs> headlines. Wanted for kidnapping. Adolf Hitler. <laughs> indicted by world opinion for murder and kidnapping with the intent to kill. And boy, were they right. You pesky Antifa, you haven't heard the last of us. And they <laughs> went into hibernation for... 80 years. For 80 years. <laughs> and then Ray went to go find them, and then they're like, I don't want to go back there. We're sitting here on the island where Antifa was born. We have all the old ancient texts, and it's just like... 1984, and it, yeah, it couldn't happen here. We have, Many copies of those things. We have uh, all the seasons of The Twilight Zone, and a biography <laughs> on Emilio Zapata. We have a mixtape I made with really hardcore songs on it. Uh, it's just stuff that doesn't let you become fascist. And we have Woody Guthrie's guitar. <laughs> we tried to use it to kill fascists, but it didn't really affect them that much. The 1939, the Boone achieved 
achieve one of the greatest and most notable feats. They held a rally at Madison Square Garden in New York and filled it with 20,000 members. And how do you get 20,000 Nazis to Madison Square Garden? Wait, I've heard this one. Practice. <laughs> I was so mad when I found out that joke was actually Carnegie Hall, but whatever. How do you get to it. Madison Square Garden? <laughs> Carnegie Hall. Join the Rangers. <laughs> how do you get Madison Square Garden? Carnegie Hall. Damn it, I messed it up. But then comes 1941. And what happens in December of 1941? That's the sound of Japanese bombing the naval base at Pearl Harbor. And then America was thrust into World War II and our tolerance for intolerance was over. Although, come on. It's us. Right away. Well, I think you mentioned in the podcast episode with Silver Shirts, like right away the next day after Pearl Harbor, military shut down Murphy's Ranch. Yeah. Pretty quickly after that, they came for the boond. Usually on the opposite end of the good things, the House Un-American Activities Committee, HUAC, started strongly mm-hmm. attacking and denying any Nazi sympathetic organization the ability to operate freely during the war years. In 1942, nine alley Nazis, including Schwinn and Diebel, the bookshop twins, uh, that great band, were convicted of violating... <laughs> <laughs> they were uh, convicted of violating the Sedition Act of 1917, which made it a crime for anybody to convey information intended to interfere with the U.S. Armed Forces prosecution of the war effort. Also, part of that was it was a criminal act to promote the success of the country's enemies, which being a Nazi in America did. Two years later, 1944, 34 more precious little pure blood Nazis were put on trial for treason. This is referred to as the Great Sedition Trial, 1944, which put them on trial for not only the Sedition Act, but something called the Smith Act. It was a criminal offense to advocate the violent overthrow of the government or to organize or be a member of any group devoted to such advocacy. Being part of a fascist movement that was supported by German forces, yeah, it turned that was a big no-no but through a lot of mishaps on the trial and a fight for freedom of speech in favor of the nazis which uh, is happening in 2017 and the death of the judge it was declared a mistrial la crescenta once again is influenced by nazi germany when it becomes home to the first wave internment camps for japanese citizens who were detained in the latuna canyon so weird uh, yeah no la crescenta is a weird area what like get the- all the nazis out let's make room for internment <laughs> it's, camps it's, yeah it's like that land was something about it was begging to become germany <laughs> after the boond was seemingly dismantled they went uh, by a different name the deutsch house Manicor, which translates to the German House Male Choir, which I don't know how much <laughs> they were just a band. Now? Yeah, I don't know how much fake singing they did to try to pass the mustard, but I don't think it worked. They just after that, and after- they do love mustard. After that, I think they went super secret. So the Boond, after all, everything said and done, they thrived from 36 to 39 and had varying reports of numbers. Some people say there was 6,000, others say it was like 500. Either way, with American pride and Nazi hate in the air, the German-American Boond was an American bunk. Uh, oh, I got him! German-American bust. Oh, oh that's better. Bo- boond, boond or bust. Oh, I like that. Don't ever speak over me again. Uh, next. <laughs> Maybe my favorite thing, I don't know if uh, you'll cover this or not, but the on-the-street enemy of the Boond was the American Legion and the Elks Lodge. No, I There was a lot of street fighting in between oh the American God. Legion and the Boond, which is so cool to me. I don't know why. <laughs> we can always depend on the Elks. Yeah. In the 60s, another hard-hitting fascist group sprung up in Glendale, not too far from La Crescenta. Glendale was at the time known as a white man's town. It was full of affluent white or northern European citizens, and it was also a very known sundown town. First of all, before we get into the Nazi party there, it was discovered that there there were swastika symbols on lampposts in Glendale that were put up in the 20s, like officially, like molded into it. Not like graffiti or but vandalism. But was it like the Buddhist swastika Yes. Okay. It was put up in the 20s. No one no, really noticed it until the 50s. And they're like, what's this? Uh, <laughs> but just because you didn't mean for your lamppost to support a League of Goons doesn't mean the League of Goons won't think you're giving them a nod or a wink. Just look at Papa John's. So in the 1960s, a new organization springs up, hailed from North Carolina, but found a home at 823 East 
Colorado Boulevard, which is a stone's throw from the auto shop that the Hillside Stranglers are killing people at. This little nondescript house, which I think it still stands to this day, was the home to the American Nazi Party run by George Lincoln Rockwell, who sounds like a president or something on the Flintstones. Rockwell was a charming, media-savvy, pipe-smoking, racist, anti-Semitic homophobe, and he was chump supreme in Glendale. He was a veteran of World War II, but upon his return to the civilian life, started thinking maybe he was on the wrong side of the war, and maybe the wrong side won. Of course, American Nazi Party, ANP, wanted to create a pure white race, all that stuff, denied Holocaust, of course, pled allegiance to their favorite parts of the U.S. Constitution, mainly free speech and guns, I imagine. The day that Martin Luther King marched on Washington, August 28, 1963, there was a counter-protest held by the American Nazi Party led by Rockwell, who had predicted that 10,000 people, man, 10,000 people, man, are going to show up, man, for this <laughs> anti-march. Fewer than 90 followers of Rockwell <laughs> marched that day, and they were surrounded by 100 uniformed police officers, and as soon as one of the supporters opened his mouth to give a speech, he was arrested because, <laughs> because losers. So the ANP set up shop in Glendale and although it was a very white town at the time although there was peace swastikas on city property the residents immediately protested the new Nazi house of course December 4th 1964 hundreds of phone calls were made to the city offices by furious citizens of Glendale to shut this place down they demanded that the Nazis be driven out the landlord of the property that they had set up shop at he didn't know that his renters were going to start a Nazi headquarters there and he didn't like that so when he found out he shut off the electricity and refused to turn it back on this act was backed by the city by saying the house could not be used for their dual purposes of being home and headquarters so the Nazis had to be by candlelight or if their neighbors left the porch light on they can like meet around the porch light like they had no power so the city of glendale went to war with the nazis regarding permits and building codes they fought them as much as they could the second in command ralph forbes was sentenced to six months in jail for operating a meeting hall in a residential home without a special permit but sadly his sentence was overturned on appeal but they kept at it anytime the nazis were disturbing the peace or vandalizing the city jumped all over them the glendale kiwanis club promised to use any and all available resources to get the american nazi party out of town my favorite of these stories was in the glendale news press there was a Democratic dinner meeting in Studio City and these Nazi punks were protesting it and a 70-year-old woman named Sadie Vice O'Sullivan walked up to some thug and said, what are you doing in this crazy rig? And ripped his swastika band off his arm and threw it in his face. He says, what are you going to do with this old lady? Shoot me, who cares? I carried my point. She continued, he was only a little guy, but if he was 10 feet tall, God help me, I would have done the same thing. After that happened, the police witnessed it and called for reinforcements. So 10 help. So they sent 100 old ladies. They sent 100 old ladies out to him. 10 helmeted police officers started to surround her. I hoped to protect her, but she was confused and thought that they were there to arrest her and she's like what's happening eventually the ANP moved from Colorado Boulevard to <laughs> she pulled out a machine gun from her purse I'll take y'all I'll take y'all I don't care they moved from Colorado to 420 uh, 420 <laughs> Hitler's birthday uh, North Glendale Boulevard and then they had to drag ass to La Crescenta 3853 Foothill Boulevard but they eventually exiled to El Monte 4375 Peck Road Rockwell Pecker Road Pecker <laughs> get him man you get oh you get him yeah I said it I'm that guy now <laughs> this is the this is the dirty podcast now yeah, <laughs> yeah Pecker's Peckers. Oh, the dirty boys. We're like Joe Rogan, you know, Peckers. You're like Joe Rogan and Bill Burr here. <laughs> Bring it. And Aaron Mankey. And I'm also Aaron Mankey. <laughs> Rockwell changed the name of the American Nazi Party, which doesn't have a friendly ring to it, to the National Socialist White People's Party, which <laughs> sounds worse. Boy. Rockwell was shot outside of a laundromat in Virginia in 1967 by a former uh, member of the American Nazi Party named John Patler, and he died. <laughs> the American Nazi Party and Rockwell were the subject of a documentary called The California Reich. This trend of Nazis and neo-Nazis from Rockwell's era continued to terrorize and stay in the Allied era through 
through the 80s. There's Nazi propaganda found among some teens in 1987. There's also a rally of the Knights of the Green Mountains, which was an Aryan pride group, and they marched right in front of Glendale Central Library, which was so weird because I was in Glendale Central Library when I was reading that. <laughs> and I was I looked at the address, like, where was this? I'm like, oh. I looked up, it was 1987. <laughs> the Knights were squashed out. There's another group called the League of Pace Amendment Advocates. They were squashed out because, you know, being a fascist, you belong in the shadows. Last year, February 2016, there was a particularly horrible neo-Nazi KKK march in Anaheim, Pearson Park. That's Orange County, I know, but it resulted, of course. Well, that's a, that is their home base. That, yeah, that, that is a... The just, motherland. The motherland. Disneyland and Deutschland. <laughs> Two recent notes. A German heritage group, but not German hate group, called the Tricentennial Foundation funded a sign in a beautiful Germanic-looking font that said, Willkommen Zoom, and then in English, Welcome to... Hindenburg Park. Mm-hmm. It was immediately protested, <laughs> and the Jewish Federation of the Greater San Gabriel and Pomona Valley said the sign was a callback to the Nazi history in the area. It had created an unwelcome atmosphere. And keep in mind that all the signs said was "Welcome to Hindenburg Park," and they were like, "No, not again." Hans Eberhard, chairman of the Tricentennial Foundation, was saying, "Like I was just trying to preserve history. We weren't honoring the man, just the park, but the, because of the park's history, they were like, still no." So they took the sign down. Why honor the man? Uh, whatever. No, not honor. I didn't want to honor the man. I wanted to honor the park. Um, and there's and mm, also like you why? know what the park's yeah, honoring, also, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's secondary honoring, but still, it's honoring. Let's just call it, well, what we just call it Washington Park. Oh, we just call it good old boy park. Let's call it Trump Park. The other recent note, of course, is that the Nazis and the fascists are unfortunately back. This time they're calling themselves the alt-right, which they have a particularly strong internet presence. They made themselves very known as Charlottesville's North Carolina in 2017 when they protested the removal of a Robert E. Lee statue, and one of the neo-Nazis drove a car into a crowd of counter-protesters and killed someone. There was an America First rally in Laguna Beach, of course, course in response to that like the very next day a big part of all the alt-right's internet presence is a neo-nazi community and news website called the daily stormer which has offices in santa monica which i don't know if it started in santa monica but it has an office in santa monica Ooh, so all gross. the pepe the frog memes and anti-diversity coming out of santa monica comes out of it festers from this site the creator of the website is a guy named aaron i'm uh, sorry aaron minky uh the, the creator <laughs> of the website is a guy named I knew it a- uh, andrew Eng- i i knew it his name is andrew anglin who is currently on the run from the law and is being pursued for his connection to the trolling of a real estate agent who lives in Whitefish, Montana named Tanya Gersh after Gersh has urged Sherry Spencer, mother of alt-right leader Richard Spencer, to move her offices. So after that, this Anglin guy sent all these people. He suggested to his goons they threaten her and her family, which apparently, according to his his lawyers, falls under free speech. Gersh is now suing Anglin, and Anglin is claiming to, oh, I'm not a citizen of the United States, and now he's, as of 2017, is still on the run. I hope they catch him. So that's just some of the Nazi history in Los Angeles. I'm not. That's not even the KKK and neo-Nazi history. If this was any other part of California, like Orange County or Riverside or Antelope Valley or the High Desert or Central California and Northern California, it would be overwhelming, but it's LA, so it's, it's whelming. All right, you took us way too far into the present. I'm going to take it back to the good old days of, um, you know, Nazism. Now that we've heard Greg's thesis on why he believed Hitler was right, I'm going <laughs> to... I'm going to tell you about the resistance. Please do. I'm dying to know about this stuff because all I've been reading about is Nazis get away with everything. Not tonight. <gasps> That's the name of the episode. Not tonight. Nazi berry farm. Nazi berry farm because they grow berries of hate. <laughs> and they're juicy, baby. <laughs> juicy. <laughs> Obviously, like Greg said, there were Nazi sympathizers in LA, but they weren't really seen as a threat, like you said. Yeah. Uh, everything is, like Greg said, yeah. good night, everybody. Not- <laughs> it wasn't until Pearl Harbor happened and suddenly yeah. the FBI decided that Nazis were bad. Nobody cares. But the Jewish people of Los Angeles couldn't just wait until Pearl Harbor happened, which yeah. we knew was coming, <laughs> to then start worrying about local Nazis in LA. Yeah. So they had to take matters into their own hands. So we did what we do best as Jewish people. We formed committees. In 1933, the committee 
community relations committee formed with the yeah. purpose of keeping an eye on the doings of the groups that you just mentioned. This committee eventually became the Jewish Federation of Greater Los Angeles, which is now the biggest Jewish community group in the city. Uh, oh, they're running everything. How come the Jews are running all the Jewish community groups? <laughs> But um, also at all the temples. What's the deal? <laughs> yeah, I want to go to temple too. But there's so many Jews in it. In March 1934, the Los Angeles Jewish Community Committee formed to gather Jewish leaders every Friday to it, which is the Sabbath, which they shouldn't be doing, to inform each other of local Nazi activity to keep their community. No one saw it coming. Who were, they were supposed to be at home. Uh, so they, the whole Friday nights. They were. <laughs> thank God it's Sabbath. <laughs> they would meet every Friday to keep their community informed and alert, making them the first anti-Nazi Jewish resistance organization in the whole country but other than just passing on information there was the european film fund and the european relief fund uh-huh. which started in la in 1938 where members would donate one percent of their weekly salary and that money was given to european refugees from the nazis to help them you know eat and to find jobs for them and get yeah. them situated here and then there were the protest groups like the united anti-nazi conference who had the biggest anti-nazi protest on november 22nd 1938 just a week or so after kristallnacht in germany what is that let me put my hebrew schooling to, te- oh to, to the test. It was basically the night in Germany where just all across the country, Jewish people, it means the night of broken glass. So it oh, was the okay. night where they just burned Jewish uh, businesses, you know, beat up a lot of people. And that was sort of like, all right, we're all in this now. We yeah. all hate Jews. Here we go. Oh, like boy. that was the start it's, of okay. the bad stuff. So this protest that they had against this, uh, it had 10,000 people marching down Brooklyn Avenue in Boyle Heights to the Breed Street Shul, where they called for FDR to sever U.S. relations with Germany and to send good macaroni salad from the East Coast into Los Angeles. <laughs> Another significant <laughs> protest was also in 1938 after Hitler... Hinkler Hinkley took the Sudetenland. <laughs> this one was only 50 people from the American League for Peace and Democracy, and they went outside the German consulate, which was at 117 West 9th Street. They were protesting our old friend, uh, German consul Dr. George Gisling. It only lasted an hour when they realized that the office wasn't open that day, and... <laughs> Just Look, is he going to come out? Uh, just stay in there with your lights off and the clothes <laughs> sign up. Okay. Typical Nazi scum. Gisling keeps coming up. We'll get back to him okay. later for the, the big the big story of him. You the, know that he actually helped Italy surrender he, all the, the Nazis. He single-handedly, <laughs> single-handedly made Germany surrender. That's Guys, a fact. I read it in a book. It was a hard hard paper, a hardback binding of Highlights magazine. Also, the paper was really hard. It was <laughs> so, a highlights. It was a hard paper. <laughs> but the most famous of the vocally anti-Nazi groups in LA was the one with the most celebrities. The one that seemed to be the most concerned with getting this group started was a man named Otto Katz. Okay. He was a big-time spy in Russia and Germany who he was doing that while also finding time to both be the inspiration for the Victor Laszlo character in Casablanca okay. and supposedly also killing Leon Trotsky. Wow. So Katz wanted to turn public opinion against the growing fascist powers in Europe, and he knew the best way to do that would be to go through the people who speak most directly to the public, movie people, movie monsters. He got Frankenstein, Dracula, and the the Wolfman too. (laughs) So with the help of Fritz Lang, in either April or July of 1936, they arranged for a $100 a plate white tie and tails party. Whoa, white tie. How about like all kinds of ties can be here? Okay. So this was at the, I wrote down the Victor Huge restaurant. It's supposed to be Victor Hugo, which I mean, some of his lovers called him Victor Huge, (laughs) if, if you've read the memoirs I have. So that was in Beverly Hills and there were 300 showbiz people who showed up to this. This was the first fundraiser 
fundraiser of the Hollywood Anti-Nazi League. Okay. They started just a few members, but Cats relied on the glamour of being a member. It was an exclusive club. Yeah. It would draw more of the Hollywood elite in. And would you know, it worked. Members, here's a few of them. Dorothy Parker, Dashiell Hammett, Do- Oscar Do- Hammerstein, yeah. Ernst Lubitsch, Gloria Stewart, F. Scott Fitzgerald, Benny Goodman, the one we were singing before on Pearl Harbor, Eddie Cantor, <laughs> Robert Benchley, Irving Berlin, James Cagney, Joan Crawford, Betty Davis, Carl Lemley, Henry Fonda, John Ford, Ira Gershwin, Samuel Goldwyn, Al Jolson, uh, maybe leave him out, Ring Lardner Jr. Hey, uh, Al Jolson, we said, uh, we we said, said white, white tie. tie. Uh, no, no. You got, you got... White tie and white face, please. <laughs> Mirna Loy was there. Ooh. Groucho Marx, Chico Marx, Harpo Marx was predictably silent. Claude Rains, Spencer Tracy, Ginger Rogers, and Gloria Stewart. Those are just some of the people. I like there. to sit at the table with Mirna Loy and Dashiell Hammett, and everyone else can just like hang around. You know, Jimmy Stewart was there too. I want to be with Al Jolson and Eddie Cantor. <laughs> By 1938, the Hollywood Anti-Nazi League had 5,000 members, all in show business, all who pledged to fight fascism in their work. The headquarters were at 6912 Hollywood Boulevard, right across the street from the Chinese Theater, oh, which cool. I think were Hooters. They held star-studded rallies at the Shrine Auditorium. They had a newspaper called Hollywood Now. They had two radio shows and their members publicly picketed German consulates, Nazi conventions. They pushed FDR to speak out against what was going on in Germany and made sure the public knew about the traitors in their midst. They kept people informed that the city of Los Angeles welcomed Mussolini's son on a vit, like a diplomatic visit to the city and Walt Disney invited Lenny Riefenstahl to stop by. Right. However, the Hollywood Anti-Nazi League only lasted until 1942 and all they really did was make a lot of noise and they kept people aware of things. Meanwhile, the local Nazis weren't just sitting around hiling so hard they could feel it in Germany. Ah, my arm. There were spies and plots were being formed. From what I found in researching this, there were two people in the city responsible for actually subverting the activities of Nazis in Los Angeles. Now, let's get to the evil German consul, Dr. George Gisling. I heard he's pretty cool. He right stopped Italy. He stopped, he stopped Italy from surrendering the Nazis or something. <laughs> he was a lawyer and World War I veteran from the losing side. He got a job at the German consulate in New York in 1927, but when Hitler took control of Germany in 1930, Gisling joined the Nazi party and was rewarded with a new job in sunny Los Angeles as Hitler's official representative to the movie industry. So this is what you... Gisling, you get some shorts together and some sunglasses. We're sending you to California. You're going to Hollywood. You're going to Hollywood. <laughs> ah, the by a car. I hear everybody has a car there. <laughs> also, I don't usually speak English, but there's a lot for today. Why would Hitler need a movie representative? Yeah, why? Because Joseph Goebbels, Hitler's minister of propaganda, Ooh, he knew the influence movies had over the masses, and he recognized LA as the most important city in the United States because of Hollywood, which was and still is the biggest propaganda machine in the entire world. Just ask the diehard fans of Birth of a Nation. You know what it can do. Here's the example I came up with. You see a dark shadow outside your window at night. What do you do? Hide shoot it <laughs> yeah you get scared you, you're scared because of all the horrible things movies show you are outside of yeah. that window now imagine if instead of a killer with a knife or a vampire outside the window like you've seen in movie after movie instead it's a Jewish person with a knife and you saw that in movie after movie then whenever you saw a shadow outside your window you're afraid a Jew's coming in yeah. he's gonna kill me that's the power movies have and Goebbels knew that way too well but in an uncharacteristic turn Goebbels felt Hollywood was too overrun with Jews huh well, odd. he felt they were spreading their sin Sinister agendas, which is why he established Gisling in LA to monitor the movies being made to make sure they created understanding and recognition for the Third Reich. That was his mission. Okay. He would decide which Hollywood movies would be allowed to be shown in Germany, and anything that made Germany look bad would not make the cut, which is something the studio heads wanted desperately to avoid because Germany had more movie theaters in it than any other country really? in Europe. And if their movies didn't appease Gisling and Hitler, they'd be losing a ton of money, which is why these guys, many of them were Jewish 
Jewish were criticized for not doing anything to fight the Nazis. They just didn't want to lose out on basically their whole business. No comment. Huh. <laughs> Interesting. Oh, this is a familiar name of a Nazi I'm seeing. Greg Gisales? Uh, a lot of uh, literative names in Germany, huh? Weird. A lot of G's going around. Interesting. How's that new house in La Crescenta treating you? <laughs> so Gisling would be shown advanced screenings and sometimes he was even sent scripts before screeners. the movies were made. Yeah, they're called screeners. Uh, I don't know. He could, They got a USB. And the cuts he suggested in order to preserve a positive image of Germany, they were often taken by the studios. Boy. But like I said, not because the studios were sympathetic to Nazis, but because they were afraid of losing money, which is even evil in its own way. Yeah. He even threatened any locally working German writers and actors who were a part of any anti-German or anti-Hitler movies. Gisling's presence in LA, it put a serious shadow over movies made at the time, so who was going to stand up to him and stop him? Everybody hated him, but who was going to do anything about it? He obviously was hated by movie, movie people. people yeah. He wasn't even liked by the local Nazis, though, because they didn't see him as Nazi enough. Wow, really? He forced a lot of movies into self-censoring if they put down Germany, uh-huh. but he didn't flat out ban any movies movies made by Jews, which would have been all of him, yeah. but which is also what the local Nazis wanted him to do. They called him a traitor for never making any anti-Semitic statements to the press. The reason for his moderate Nazism was this. You almost got it. He was actually working secretly to bring down the Nazis. Even though he was a pretty high-ranking member of the Nazi party, he hated their anti-Semitism and what they were doing to his country. He loved Germany and wanted to protect it in any way he could, and that meant bringing down the man he felt was ruining it, Adolf Hitler. It's a mass, George Gisling. I'm hesitant to completely, because it's, you know... Why? There's proof of it, but it's not an accepted thing yet. So I don't want to go praising some Nazi just in case it's not true. As the local consul, he was kept privy to the political workings back in Germany and how their economy was doing. He was also informed on the doings of the German-American Bund and all of this information he took and gave to a Jewish friend of his named Julius Klein, who is an officer in the Illinois National Guard, who then gave the information to General George C. Marshall, head of U.S. Army Intelligence. So it was going directly to the people who needed it. In January 1940, he was part of a three-day meeting with high-ranking German diplomats where they discussed how the war was going and that Germany was afraid of the U.S. entering the war before Europe could be conquered. In this meeting, they also discussed, you also kind of talked about this, they talked about how the SS were sending their secret agents into the U.S. and that their agents, they were already embedded in the war factories along the West Coast and were ready to stop production on any weapon being used against Germany whenever they got the signal. All of this information Gisling passed on to the head of army intelligence and being sympathetic to the German Jews who were being increasingly mistreated, Gisling even set up a secret phone code for any local German Jews who needed his help. If they called asking for Dr. Ginsburg, he knew that it was a Jewish person calling for help. Wow. And then he read Howell to them. (laughs) It's all the young minds. I don't remember the rest of that. (laughs) He even set up secret meetings between Jewish and German intermediaries to try to negotiate to get Germany to loosen their anti-Jewish laws. And if they came up with anything, he promised he would take the plan to the German ambassador. Obviously, nothing ever came up. But at a certain point, the Nazis back home must have noticed something suspicious because in the summer of 1941 when he went back to Germany with his family for a visit, the SS took him and they interrogated him for days and asked him why he was so soft on the Jews. And he managed to convince them that he was loyal and he was let go, but he was so scared that he transferred out of LA to work in Italy. This is uh, where he almost got it right. This Highlights Magazine gets, the, the details are muddy. <laughs> sometimes a pencil is just a shape and you're just seeing a pencil that's not that. It's just, Sometimes a pencil is just a tree. <laughs> this is what he did in 1945 he went on to be a key part of Operation Sunrise which was the mostly peaceful surrender of the German troops in northern Italy he didn't get all of Germany to surrender he got 
all of Germany. <laughs> and he used the movies to do it. After the war, Gisling was arrested and he was tried at Nuremberg, but he was cleared of charges for the help that he had provided the Allies. But not everyone fighting the Nazis was this high-ranking turncoat who could, you know, a classic spy. Some of them were just average people making sure that their local communities were safe, which was the case of the guy who is the most important resistance fighter in Los Angeles, Leon Lewis. He was a lawyer out of the University of Chicago Law School who served in military intelligence during World War I and he was Jewish. Hooray! <laughs> he went on to be the first national secretary of the Anti-Defamation League, which was an offshoot of a group started to protect Jews worldwide in the 1800s called B'nai B'rith. But in 1931, he came to LA to set up his law office in the Roosevelt Building at 7th and Flower downtown. It wasn't long, though, before he noticed the Nazi presence in town. And just as quickly, he noticed that they were growing stronger and stronger. Here's the rest of that quote that you were reading before. Yeah, yeah. It was a local poster. Christian vigilantes arise by Gentiles employ Gentile, vote Gentile, boycott the movies. Hollywood is the Sodom and Gomorrah where international Jewry controls vice dope and gambling, where young Gentile girls are raped by Jewish producers, directors and casting directors who go unpunished, which is only partly true. <laughs> but on July 26, 1933, a hundred local Nazis had their first public meeting with swastikas and all at the Alt Heidelberg building, it was at 902 South Alvarado, where they announced their plan to unite all the scattered Nazi groups throughout LA into one powerful movement. And this was coming just a few months after Germany had sent Robert Pape to the city to help build all these organizations. So Lewis saw all this and he knew that now wasn't the time for lawyering. Yeah. He had to act now. You had to become an action it's, hero. It's time to put away childish things. Like the I'm, law. I'm hanging up my bar degree or whatever. <laughs> like I said, the country was so obsessed with communists at the time that nobody was worried about Nazis. So there was no government intervention coming to stop what was building. And Lewis knew that. So he decided to use the Nazis' own strategies against them. During the Depression, veteran benefits got cut severely. Oh, right. And these angry veterans who were abandoned by the country, they just fought to protect a few years before this. In the Nazis' eyes, these were the perfect recruits right. for what they're trying to do. They suspected that the veterans would want to repay the country for their betrayal, but not if Lewis could get to them first. Oh, boy. So in early August in 1933, Lewis used his connections with the American Legion and the disabled veterans of World War One, and went straight to what we now call the Bob Hope Patriotic Hall <laughs> on Figueroa, and he managed to convince four men and their wives and their daughters to join him on his mission. His plan was to have these men and women join every single Nazi fascist or good old fashioned hate group in the entire city and report back to him on every single Damn. thing that the groups were doing. They had code names, they had a code language, they had everything. That's amazing. His very first recruit was a man named John Schmidt who was actually German and the son of a Bavarian general. He had been hospitalized for six years after World War One because he was shell-shocked and when those veteran budget cuts happened he lost most of his money but when the friends of the new Germany came calling to get him to join their side he still chose America over the Nazis even though America kind of betrayed him yeah. being a German of such you know noble background he was highly desired by the FNG so when Lewis who was an old friend from the Americanism committee came asking for his help Schmidt knew he had a lot to offer to try to protect both his old country and his new country he had three code names he was agent 11 74 and elf two of those are really good <laughs> yeah Agent Elf. That's cool. <laughs> I'm here to bring gifts of death. So his first assignment was to go back to the FNG and tell them that he changed his mind. I want to join you guys. He got a couple friends from the Disabled American Veterans Group to join up as spies uh, for Lewis with him. There was Captain Carl Sunderland and Major Bert Allen. So the three of them went down to the Alt Heidelberg building to see what exactly was happening here. It turned out it was being used to house and feed unemployed Germans for free. Just one catch. 
you have to learn everything about national socialism while you're there. So this was terrifying to find out because that is how Hitler got started in yeah. Germany. They were admitted into the FNG headquarters, which was in a, here's the layout. Here's the, let me get the blueprints yeah, I was telling you about. It was in the back room of the Aryan bookstore and these men joined the group and they worked their way up the ranks. What they found out, it was disturbing. LA had always had a strong KKK presence yes. and was never really sympathetic to Jewish people. We had a mayor who was in the KKK. Everybody was in the KKK. <laughs> it would be shocking if the mayor wasn't in the KKK. <laughs> so the Nazis of the FNG were banking on this history of hatred in yeah. Los Angeles and the fact like you said that the port of LA was way less monitored than the ports in New York so this was an easy in to the city yeah. every German ship that came into the port of LA from 1933 to 41 had a Gestapo officer on board that the local Nazi groups would give their information to these officers would have meetings with the FNG that Lewis's men observed where they would smuggle in thousands of pounds of Nazi literature should, and cash they should have built a wall how about a wall between Los Angeles and Germany <laughs> it covers covers most of the world, sure, but hear me out. <laughs> Germany's going to pay for it. <laughs> We're blocking off most of the water that comes into our... But here's... We're safe. <laughs> they would discuss their plans for LA, which was to get rid of the communist Jews in the city, okay. push all the Catholics and the Jews out of the local government, and replace them with German Americans who would bring policies into practice that they learned from the Nazi literature, which would effectively bring Nazism into the US government and, in their opinion, make America great again. And once <laughs> once they had a stronghold in LA, the rest of the country would follow city by city. But there was something that was even scarier that these men found out about. It was called Tog, which means the day. Schmidt learned about it in September 1933 at an FNG dinner at the Lorelei restaurant. Were you talking about that? No. No. It was a German beer hall that a lot of Nazis would eat at and, you know, they do their German songs or whatever. I just hate them so much. <laughs> stupid later hosen. <laughs> Go in there. Culture. Beautiful culture. I hate Come on, it. Pigtails. <laughs> Build that wall Sh uh, across the world. <laughs> so Schmidt went to this dinner. He was bombarded with questions by the Germans there about how many Jews were in the U.S military and whether or not the military would put up a fight if the FNG came for their Jews. Could Schmidt and his friends veteran status get FNG members into the local National Guard building so that they could get floor plans? This was all in preparation for Der Tag, yeah. which would have been the Hitler revolution in the United States. Oh. It was the day Germany would have invaded the United States and Nazi agents in cities throughout the country would rise up and disable the country from the inside. So America would have fallen all at once. Oh, wow. If these plans had gone through, they would have blown up a munitions plant in San Diego and destroyed the docks and warehouses along the coast. Like you said, uh -huh. they would have bought guns from Mexico and Canada. And they even had, you know, there's a lot of movie studios in town and there's a lot of explosions yeah. in movie studios. They could have gotten explosives from oh, them man. that could easily fall into the hands of the German employees that work there. And it wasn't just a pipe dream. They were already buying guns from San Diego and they already San had Diego, keep up with us. They already had agents in the National Guard armories in San Francisco and San Diego, and they had a floor plan of the Northern California armory. Deep Southern California, you messed up. Northern California, you messed up. LA, just right. You're doing it. Just You're housing right. all these criminals. <laughs> this felt like enough information to Lewis to go off of, so yeah. he went straight to the authorities figuring, they'll take it from here. My job's done. They couldn't have cared less. Oh. He went to LAPD Chief Jim Two Guns Davis. He's a... Don't go to Two Gun Davis. Two minutes into Lewis's explanation, Davis stopped him. He said, Hitler's just trying to save Germany and was right to do what he's doing. I would. Oh. He said, Germans. You take this 
You take this to his underling. His underling, William H. Parker, he would have done something because he doesn't like that. Take it straight to Dragnet. Tell Columbo. So Two Guns Davis said Germans could not compete economically with the Jews in Germany and had been forced to take the action they did. He said the real problem was all the commie Jews in Boyle Heights. So the LAPD's out. Great. Then he went to the sheriff's department and turned out they were sympathetic to the Nazis. Then he went to the local FBI. They were sympathetic to the Nazis. And and this is surprising me. Why? I don't know why I thought that authority figures would care that the Nazis were taking over, but apparently not. Oh, yeah, they're all white at the time. That's right. So it was all up to Lewis yet again. But Lewis had been funding all these spy operations out of his own pocket, and he knew he had just scratched the surface of what the Nazis were planning. But to dig deeper, he needed money, and he didn't have money. These first six months, in today's dollars, it cost him over 100000 So he went to B'nai B'rith, they weren't interested. What? So then he went to the local Jewish business owners, but they barely raised $1,000 to help him. So he was desperate for a group of rich, powerful Jewish people to fund his spy ring. Then he no remembered, he's in Hollywood. Nah. On March 13th, 1934... I think you're anti-Semitic. On March the thing, 13th, 1934. <laughs> <around>. <laughs> on March 13th, 1934, Lewis arranged for a special banquet at the Hillcrest Country Club at 10,000 Pico Boulevard, the only country club in town that allowed Jews. 40 guests were invited, including the heads of all the major studios cool. or their representative. There was Irving Thalberg of MGM, Harry Cohen of Columbia, Henry Hengison of Universal, Harry Joseph and the Harry and the Hendersons of John Lithgow Studios, Joseph Schenk of 20th Century, Jack Warner of Warner Brothers, Emmanuel Cohen of Paramount, Saul Wurzel of Fox, and Pandro Berman of RKO, just name a few of them. Lewis knew it would be a hard sell to get this funding because of the studio's accommodations to the German censorship. Mm -hmm. But on each seat at the dinner was a copy of the Silver Legion on it, which was the propaganda magazine of the Silver Shirts. In it warned that Hollywood Jews would force them to rip our divine constitution to shreds and hand it over, heads bent low, spirits crushed, morale destroyed to the bulbous nosed lords of international national jewelry. That's what you sound like when you say things like that. <laughs> I got that off of Greg's Twitter account. In the drafts. <laughs> Yeah, I read your draft bin. <laughs> Lewis also informed the men that for the previous nine months leading up to this meeting, Nazis had been getting jobs in their movie studios and firing as many Jewish employees as they Yeesh. could. And by his estimates, so many below-the-line Jewish workers were being fired from the studios that they were at almost 100% Aryan purity, even at that point. These revelations and the fact that these same moguls had been in a meeting about censorship just a few months earlier with a representative from the Catholic Church who told them that there was was a rising Nazi sentiment in the country. This convinced them. They were like, all right, I think something's happening. They decided to give Lewis the funding that he needed. From that meeting alone, in today's dollars, he raised over 400000 Wow. The biggest donors were Thalberg, Warner, and Cohen. One of them, I forget which one, but one of them was like, you know, we don't have that many Jewish people that work at our studio, so we're not going to give that much. Uh, get the name. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna <laughs> to say it was Lucasfilm. <laughs> they even agreed to set up a council that would meet every month mm-hmm. to make sure that none of their studios were making any movies that might fan the Nazi flames. Miraculously, the federal government finally started taking an interest in Nazis in March 1934. They passed funding for an investigation into their activity in the U.S. Lewis went to D.C. personally to show the leader of this new group, Samuel Dickstein, don't laugh, what he had found and made Jewish. Whenever I was writing Lewis, I kept writing Lewis. It looks like uh, it's not just me. You know, I was... 
auditioning for being a ghostwriter on your Twitter account. But <laughs> this guy made Lewis Dickstein. Don't laugh. It made Lewis the West Coast counsel to his committee. Okay. So now Lewis's spies were politically protected by the U.S. government in case anything should happen. You can't see me, but I'm doing the A-OK thing with my hand. That means something bad in Germany. Damn it. It means you support Goebbels more than <laughs> Hitler. What's wrong with you? Then in December, nine, God, I take a picture of that and put it on Twitter. <laughs> then in December 1934, Lewis got another huge break when the D.C. committee came to L.A. and basically broke up the local Nazi groups, including the FNG. They also made new laws hindering foreign propaganda. And Lewis, after 16 months as a spy, felt that his job was done and he can finally go back to practicing law. What is it? The mid-30s? We're A-OK now. <laughs> World War II averted. But then in 1935, the FNG came back with its new name, the German-American Bund. And Lewis had to hang up his lawyer hat and put back on his spy hat, which was smaller and had a camera in it. <laughs> smaller, heavier, had a camera in it. <laughs> Gave him lead poisoning. <laughs> the fight was back on, but this time Lewis had the funding to do it right. At the height of his operations, he had almost two dozen spies working for him. He had a full-time PR guy out there letting people know that Nazis were bad. Lewis also had local Red Squad Captain William Red Hines, who he may or may not have been bribing to work with him. They exchanged information that the LAPD had on the Nazis and vice versa. Lewis even hired an agent from the Red Squad. This was codenamed Agent M. Is that a James Bond reference? <laughs> this is just information. This I'm I'm just t I'm just stating the facts, man. It you're, was Operation Skyfall, but I'm just stating the facts. In 1938, a journalist named Joseph Ruse was hired as his assistant. In 1939, he even started publishing the News Research Newsletter, which could have been better. Yeah, I mean, you got a lot of money from those movie studios. Spend it on a better name. <laughs> and it paid for the word. They're sponsored by News. <laughs> this was basically they just took his spy records and published them with the names of the spies taken out for whoever might want to read it. He just wanted to get the information out there. Yeah. Lewis's spies also extended into the local Italian and Japanese communities, and he had them join every Nazi-related group in the city, and many of them even became leaders in these groups. Running this Nazi party over here. <laughs> Adolf Hitler fun. worked for him. I don't want, you know, I didn't want to fully endorse Gisling, but I think Hitler was a righteous Gentile. Schmidt's wife, Alice, aka Agent 17, cool. had been president of the FNG's <laughs> Ladies Auxiliary. Oh auxiliary. God. Yeah. There was a former engineer and journalist 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 named neil ness who became the right hand man of Hermann Schwinn. So this is why Lewis was known by the Nazis in Germany as the most dangerous Jew get in him, Los Angeles. Get him. Which a title I uh, now hold. There's Lewis, of course, and uh, don't forget Super Jew himself, Lenny Bruce. <laughs> don't mess with him, okay? <laughs> if you go into Googie's one night and say bad things, he'll, he'll, he'll say, try to punch you and you can throw him through a window. window. <laughs> and he'll survive it for a while. Lewis, he was the ringleader of all the Jews here, as they were referring to him. And it was working. He was doing it great. His spies uncovered plot after plot after plot. Get him, get him, His spies him. were the people who figured out what was going on at Murphy Ranch. Wow. Okay. They foiled a plan. The local Nazis, they were going to take machine guns through Boyle Heights and shoot down as many Jews as they could. They were going to drive by shooting machine guns. They also discovered that the Silver Shirts, it turned out, had made maps of LA showing every house that had a Jewish person living in it. Their plan was to go to these houses as a fake fumigation company and pump cyanide into the homes while the families were sleeping. That's pretty scary. Yeah, it's really scary. There was even a plot involving mass lynchings, which I'll get into in just a minute because the plot was abandoned, but then it came back even worse. None of these plots came to fruition because these organizations knew 
knew there were spies in their midst, but they didn't know who were the spies. So they were too afraid to act because they would risk getting arrested. Yeah. So now let's go to the big one. It was uncovered by a spy named Charles Slocum. He was a 28-year-old water taxi driver in Long Beach, who from what I understand, he was a former member of the KKK, but apparently he came to, he KK came to him senses <laughs> and he left them. But when he got involved with Lewis, he was assigned to rejoin the KKK. Uh, look who came crawling, who came <laughs> c- c- crawling <laughs> back. <laughs> c- 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 crawling back for more. So he joined the KKK and several other groups. Slocum got in good with Ingram Hughes, who was the founder of the American Nationalist Party in LA by telling him that he felt the KKK and the Silver Shirts weren't militant enough. This was right in line with Hughes' call in 1935 to his fellow Christian Americans to come up with a final solution for American Jews. Hughes then introduced Slocum to a man named Leopold McLaglin, which is a name I'm not going to have fun saying. Yeah. He was a former British actor whose brother was Victor McLaglin from The Quiet Man, but Victor refused to let two McLaglins be actors. <laughs> and we agree. <laughs> Leopold was forced into teaching martial arts to rich people in California. He was also a rabid fascist. He was notoriously fascist. Foaming at the mouth of fascism? Just dripping, I don't know, communist blood. That's what they drink. I don't yeah, know. I've never read a book. <laughs> I read Dracula, but... <laughs> in September 1937, Slocum and McLaglin met at a dinner with a few other local Nazis at the House of Sullivan restaurant where he confided to him of a plot he had. It was building on that earlier plot about lynchings I mentioned that had been planned by Ingram Hughes and uh, Herman Schwinn. They had yeah. been working on it. Plot was simple. He had a list of more than 24 high-profile Jews, Hollywood anti-Nazi League members, and Christians who helped them in Los Angeles. For each name, there would be a team of four or Nazi boys and white Russians, which I don't know what that means. Oh, it's a milk with vodka. <laughs> oh, the big Lebowski one to do this. Each name would have a team of four people who would get dynamite from their friends in the LAPD, go to the houses of each of these What's people. What's funnier, that they had dynamite or friends in the LAPD? They would go to the houses of each of these people, kidnap them, take them outside, blow up the house, hang this person outside, and then machine gun their bodies, all these people on the same night. On this list of the people who were about to be lynched, Charlie Chaplin... Eddie Cantor, Al Jolson, Louis B. Meyer, Jack Warner, Busby Berkeley, who will look good dangling on a rope's end, they said, Samuel Goldwyn, Superior Court Judge Henry M. Willis, Jack Benny, James Cagney, Paul Mooney, Gloria Stewart, who's the old lady from Titanic, Sylvia Sidney, who's the caseworker in Beetlejuice, William Wyler, and Lewis himself were on this list. McLaglin and the planners would spend the night in Santa Barbara so they'd have an alibi because they knew they would be the suspects, and all the assassins were wear cotton gloves and heavy wool socks so that no one would know. Cute! <laughs> a bunch of elves came. They-, <laughs> they dragged me out of my house. <laughs> they also expected there not to be much LAPD inquiry, saying that the cops would not be interested, but will give a sigh of relief. This was intended to be America's crystal knock. They hoped it would ignite the flame under all the latent Nazis in the country and start a nationwide uprising against the Jews. What they didn't count on was that the person they wanted overhearing these plans, least of all, was sitting right there at the dinner. <laughs> table across their bratwurst from them. Slocum convinced the leader of the Silver Shirts, Ken Alexander, and another guy named Henry Allen that were in on the planning that McLaglin was going to double cross them and pin the murders on them while he got off clean. So like any good Nazi would do, these two struck first and double crossed McLaglin before he could get a chance to double cross then. What a good guy. Not that he was even going to. <laughs> the two men went to the DA and told them everything in exchange for immunity and on October 26, 1937, McLaglin was arrested 
arrested and charged not for attempted murder, but for extorting money. But Lewis made sure that the police involvement in this incident got covered up so as not to embarrass the LAPD, but Why? most importantly, make sure that they owed him Ooh, and that good. they knew that. McLaglin got five years in prison, and then when he got out, he was deported. See, that's how it's done. That's how it's done. <laughs> you don't get deported and then prison. Go back home to where your <laughs> kind is running uh, yeah. running the show. Another threat neutralized by Lewis's spies. Evidence provided by Lewis's efforts also helped get Schwinn's citizenship revoked in 1939 and get him deported. And once World War II officially came to the U.S. and the government took Nazi threats seriously, he still didn't stop. The FBI was, they were looking at foreign agents, but Lewis wanted to focus on homegrown American Nazis or yeah. fifth columnists as they're called, or that sort of person is called. His main spies during the war years were Grace and Sylvia Comfort, who were a mother and daughter. The list of names in FBI roundups that happened in LA were basically just retyped lists of the names Lewis had already given them. The FBI found even more names when they raided a storage unit that was being used by the German consulate that was filled with note cards with the names of all the Nazi sympathizers in LA, wow. including head of public relations at Fox, Jason Joy, I UCLA co-founder Ernest C. Moore, and I LA Times publisher Norman Chandler. Oh, a Chandler. So Nazis in LA, there are no Nazis in LA. LA. No matter how likely or not what they were planning could actually be pulled off, it was real. They were here and yeah. Lewis made LA the center of Jewish American efforts to spy on them. And Lewis's spies didn't just foil a few of their plots. They foiled all of their plots. And they were good at it. None of these spies ever fired a weapon to do this. Just by keeping an eye out and speaking up, they were able to stop what destroyed most of Europe. And Lewis's name isn't really well known because like a good spy, uh, State Farm is there. He kept himself hidden from history. He was watching over LA for 12 years and he didn't care about getting credit for what he found out just as long as someone did something about it. He died with barely anyone knowing what he did in 1954 at the age of 65 of a heart attack while he was driving down the PCH, which Yeesh. is ridiculous. And even though Lewis was Jewish, only one of his spies was also Jewish. He purposely did that because the anti-Jewish sentiment in the country, he didn't want to risk what he was finding being brushed off as Jewish paranoia. Yeah. But the fact that these people who were not Jewish agreed to put their lives at risk for this, and three of his spies did disappear mysteriously. Oh. It says so much more about that. They knew that what was happening wasn't a Jewish concern. This was an American concern because if you attack one of our ethnicities, you're attacking all of our ethnicities. So Stephen J. Ross, who's the guy who was looking through the CSUN archives for yeah. his new book, Hitler in Los Angeles, it's all about Lewis. He said that Lewis and his spies showed us through their actions that when a government fails to stem the rise of extremists bent on violence, it's up to every citizen to protect the lives of every American, no matter their race or religion. And that's exactly what Lewis did. That's pretty great. Yeah. That's a great story. It's really interesting. Yeah. It's, it's someone that nobody knows about. That's so bizarre because that's a huge, yeah, yeah that's, that's a huge heroism. story. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and these spies who most of their names, I mean, they might be in the art because uh, all of um, Lewis's documents and all that got yeah. sent to CSUN. So I'm sure their names are out there somewhere, but yeah. like nobody, aside from, you know, Slocum yeah. and the other ones. Oh, that's a great story though. I, it's weird because every once in a while you're like, well, I've heard every Nazi yeah. story there is. I've <laughs> heard every espionage story. No, there's another one. Hey, that's why I keep watching every Nazi movie that comes <laughs> out because every single story is different and interesting. <laughs> that's fascinating. Yeah, it's crazy. And it's really scary. Yeah, it's really scary. Yeah. It's so weird to because we're so far removed. The more we learn about Los Angeles during World War II, Santa Barbara was, what did we say? It was the only, because like that Japanese submarine launched that's some right. stuff in Santa Barbara. That was like the only attack on the American mainland during World War II. And it was right by here. Yeah. And this and this is 
happening in LA. It's, it's so, weird. Yeah, I got one of those Arcadia publishing books about LA during World War II, and none of this, no Nazis in LA, none of Lewis was mentioned. Yeah. Like, it, it, it's such a, we always concentrate, like, the Hollywood canteen, and, like, yeah. Jimmy Stewart went to war, like, with yeah, so much exactly. of that. Yeah, exactly. Everyone focuses on the Hollywood anti-Nazi thing. Like, yeah. they didn't do anything. Yeah, they, they, <laughs> they went on a radio show. Exactly. <laughs> Go and buy bonds. That's why, with, like, the Gisling thing, I'm I, why I was hesitant to be like, this is a hero. I feel weird because no one else is talking about it yeah. other than this guy who did the research from the thing. So, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's weird. It's bizarre, yeah. It's good stuff. I think we should win a Pulitzer Prize for this episode. I mean, right now. Like, not even down the line. Sweden, could you yeah. get in here? And <laughs> how should we sum this up? Um, so go out Hitler. there. Go out there. <laughs> if in our closing statements, you know, long live Germany. How about a Fourth Reich? Does that mean what Germany is now is the Fourth Reich? I have no idea what Reich means. I don't know, I don't actually, know. because I assumed it's kind of like, you know, the Gilded Age, the Golden Age, oh, whatever. There was the First Reich, the Second Reich, and then the Nazis were going to be the Third Reich, and it failed, and now we're in the Fourth Reich? No, you go back to two. Try it again. This is <laughs> two, Reich 2.5. Try the Third Reich again. <laughs> yeah, no, it's scary times still, but like also there's a lot of people with all the knowledge of what happened from yeah, World War II. Yeah, there's more awareness. There's more awareness, and more people are willing to voice their... So many people are willing to voice their opinion. <laughs> but like we've seen, it's more it's one thing to voice your opinion and it's another thing to stand up. Yeah, exactly. And I'm hey, I'm not doing either. Hey, listen, there are I'll stronger be hiding people. in my own attic. There are more heroic people out there. There are people who can bench press a lot more I'm than lot. me. I'm not Ali Meekly. I'm not on lore or uh last podcast on left. I'm I'm here. Speaking of lore, if you're on iTunes listening to lore, how about you go on iTunes and leave a review for LA Meekly? Pretty good. That uh, was pretty good. Pretty good. Uh, that means that they're gonna leave a review for lore and forget about us. Uh, <laughs> leave all of your LA Meekly reviews on lore. <laughs> lore. someone will notice <laughs> go on uh, itunes uh if you have an iphone use your podcast app leave us some stars it's nice it helps people that. find us more it helps us get our name out there it yes. helps us go keep going emotionally uh, i don't have a lot out there you know i just uh, it's just me and this podcast i and, uh, died a long <laughs> time ago, ago. <laughs> i'm a ghost of a ghost of a ghost of a ghost <laughs> by the time this episode comes out our youtube channel should be uh, armed and fully operational all the episodes on there up on the run. i'm talking about star killer man i'm all about new generation not about death star one or death star two i'm talking about the third death star <laughs> youtube it's a new thing we have uh it's, it's <laughs> <new video. laughs> i don't know if you've heard of this but you can watch videos on there there's it's, like you know cooking and girls putting on makeup taking stuff out of boxes i hear kids reviewing toys um <laughs> you could find us on facebook under ali meekly instagram, instagram ali underscore, underscore meekly twitter at ali meekly we have a tumblr page which is our home base it's ali meekly.tumblr.com gmail send us an email la.meekly at gmail.com send us a gmail if you have any comments suggestions, suggestions for episodes or if you work in an interesting place in the city or know someone who does we are looking to do more field trip episodes we yeah. could come down to your place mm-hmm. and uh interview you yes and we uh keep an eye out because we have an event planned in january which sounds oh, really exciting yeah. so keep an eye out for yeah, that keep it up for that also uh patreon be our patreon saint as i like to say <laughs> donate some money we have a few benefits up there so we'll send you like some postcards and some pictures and things like that yeah thank you so much for listening to us through all of 2016 to 2015 to 2014 thank you very much we hope that carry on more importantly thank you for listening in 2013 yeah 2013 when no one else did that was just me and you and my mom 2018's uh, looking really good so far 2018's going great yeah, so far so far first episode of 2018 it's great um, best podcast I've ever heard get ready for next month it's our big 50th anniversary special it's not really special it's just gonna be an episode with a special episode a special episode of a very Ash. special episode of LA Meekly the one where we get an abortion or whatever
what when it was on tv like a very special episode oh, okay well yeah. i watch different tv than you did obviously <laughs> i watch abortion tv <laughs> everything's still grassy to me thanks for listening get 2018 off to a good start yes we love you so that's been the first episode of 2018 for la meekly and the boys finding hidden nazi messages in highlights magazine since 2013 Hile us <laughs>